Father, we thank you uh, once again, as we do every week, for the privilege that we have of coming and gathering together as a small part of your church to learn more about you. I thank you especially for this uh, particular semester where we've been able to think deeply and uh, from many different angles about our relationship with you. And I, I pray that it would uh, have been beneficial to every one of us. I know it has to me to think about, in some cases, very uh, complex things and in some cases very basic, um, but to think deeply about them and to allow our hearts to meditate on them so that we can appreciate them uh, in such a greater way. I pray tonight as we uh, meditate on the person of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf, I pray that you would help us to appreciate him and appreciate your love for us demonstrated through him. And so I pray that you would help me to be clear, that you would help all of to be able to pay attention and not be bored out of their minds, but to be able to participate and be active in their thinking so that they can uh, not just hear me, but hear the truth of your word and that that would resonate in their hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. So quick review. I've listed all eight weeks that we've covered so far. Um, We started with God is a knowable God. He can be known. And we must not just simply be content with knowing facts about God, but we must know God, and that means we have a relationship with Him. Week two is we emphasize the fact that while God is knowable, He is at the same time incomprehensible. That does not mean that He is unknowable. That just simply means that you can't know everything about Him. So God is knowable. Um, but he cannot be known exhaustively or comprehensively by finite man. And that was exemplified very clearly in the doctrine of God's Trinity. Then week three and four, we talked about how God has chosen to reveal himself in the Old and New Testaments. And the real uh, thrust of those lessons, or at least the reason why the curriculum guided us to those two lessons, was because Often one of the criticisms of Christianity is that you have, uh, you re- some people might reject Christianity because they see such polar opposite pictures of God. In the Old Testament you see a God who's angry and destroys everything and just wipes everything off the, the face of the earth. And then you have this God of grace and love in the New Testament. And what I tried to suggest was that that is not an accurate picture, but that we have a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. So we have a God who is a loving God from the moment and opening pages of Scripture all the way till the end. And the whole Scripture, could, the big, big picture, could be summed up as, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's how it all began. God was Adam and Eve's God and they were his people. Sin messed that all up and broke that relationship that he created for man and he to enjoy together. And he made the seed promise in Genesis 3.15 that one was going to come of Eve's descendants who was going to crush the head of the serpent. And that one, we learn throughout Scripture, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the key to fulfilling and consummating God's plan of now making us, his, or making 
or him becoming our father and we becoming his people. And that will ultimately culminate in the new heavens and new earth. So then we move to specific, uh, three specific qualities or characteristics of God. We started with God is sovereign, that he's, he's in complete control of everything, and that he's in complete control for two purposes, at least. One is his glory, and two is the good of his people. God has not obligated himself to the good of everybody, only to the good of his people. And then week six, we discussed that God is holy. That means that he's set apart, and he's set apart in two distinct ways. One is his majestic transcendence. So in other words, he is wholly other in every way, shape, or form, right? And then, so there's no one above him, that there's no one that he answers to. And then he's also set apart from his creation in moral purity. And that aspect of moral purity is the aspect of his holiness that he calls us to. So in 1 Peter 1.16, he says, Be holy, therefore, as I am holy. And, and the impetus there and the logic there is because you have been born of me, you take on my qualities and characteristics. You now have my DNA. So therefore, since I am holy, you be holy. You be not majestically transcendent, that's impossible. No, you be morally pure. And then we looked at Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, and we, we saw that spirit-energized effort. Remember, that's an important thing because our effort of our own is not going to work, right? It's, it's effort that is only energized by the Holy Spirit, and if you're a believer, you have the Spirit energizing what you do. So Spirit-energized effort in uh, to grow in holiness and keeping our eyes fixed on the gospel are the two keys that we need to live effective and productive lives, growing lives in our relationship with God. Then we looked uh, two weeks ago at our God is loving, and we define love according to uh, the theologian itinerant speaker, now I believe seminary president Vody Balcom, who defines love as an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. And we wanted to make sure that we understood it's an act of the will, so therefore it's a decision that's accompanied by feeling, but not led by feeling. And it leads to action, so it's not just a passive thing. I say I love but then I don't do anything, kind of like James talks about. But it's a, a true biblical love is an act with emotion that leads to action on behalf of the good of its object. And then last week we looked at God as our Father. And we spent the entire time, I think, discussing five texts of Scripture. And we saw that God is a compassionate and gracious God to those who fear him, to those who have repented and believed and have this awe of him that can only be had by those who repent and believe. And we saw that his reaction or response to his children as a father is that of love, is that of joy. Remember Zephaniah 3.17, that he delights in his children with singing. And we also noted that he demonstrates his care both through meeting uh, material needs, 
Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, and also uh, Hebrews 12, I believe, where he shows that he disciplines those whom he loves. So this week, our goal is to discover what role God the Son, Jesus Christ, plays in our relationship with God the Father. So it's to discover what role God the Son, Jesus Christ, plays in our relationship with God the Father. And I'm going to confess that if you're tired tonight, you are going to be in for a treat because I'm going to talk most of the time. So I'm not going to ask you lots of questions tonight. So if you need some Coke, I have uh, been sipping on Coke up here to keep awake myself. And so if you fall asleep, I will not cast stones. I will mark it in my attendance sheet. So to fulfill this goal tonight, and I will confess also up front that this is a lot of times what I do, and I know some of you don't like this, but a lot of times what I do is I sit there and I read the chapter. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. This week I really didn't like it. And uh, so what I did is, or what I typically do regardless, is I sit there with a topic in my mind and I just start thinking. And I just start thinking about texts and ideas, and I just, what ends up happening is I just start meditating. And I don't mean like the, (laughs) I mean, like I start just allowing, I just start chewing over scripture and chewing it over and chewing, and I'll take an idea of the gospel and I'll start just teasing it out. And so what you'll hear tonight, uh, it's nothing spectacular, it's nothing difficult, um, but it's going to be a lot of kind of me just thinking about the gospel and looking at different angles. Well, meditation, actually, the best illustration that can be given for meditation is a cow chewing its cud. Because it, 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 a cow eats the grass, swallows it, and then it vomit burps, burps it back up into its mouth and it chews it again to maximize all its nutrients. And it just does that. It's really awesome picture, right? And that's what... And so it works really well with junior hires when I've taught junior hires. And there's a really scientific term that I can't remember the name of right now. That That's uh, rumination. That's not that scientific, but that's the scientific term of a verb. A vomit verb. That's also a scientific term made up by probably someone on Saturday Night Live. So anyway, here's my vomit burping or rumination or meditation of things related to Jesus, God's Son, and how He facilitates or plays, what role He plays in our relationship with God the Father. And so to do this, I'm going to suggest five ways, but the five ways are going to come out of five supposedly made-up problems that I'm going to suggest, okay? So the first two problems are going to be found in... uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1. So if, if you have your Bibles, have them on your phone, look at Colossians chapter 1. I'll read it. Um, but if you have it, you can keep it in front of you. That would be good because we're going to refer back to it a couple times. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, that is the Son, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So problem number one in our relationship, naturally speaking, between us humans and God is is this. And there's a lot of them, so this is just mine. The problem of visibility. The problem of visibility. How can I have a relationship with a God I cannot see? I mean, God is spirit, Scripture says. I can't see God. How can I have a relationship with a God that I cannot see? So how does Jesus solve the problem of visibility? How does Jesus solve the problem of how can we have a relationship with a God that we cannot see? Here would be an answer. Manifestation. Manifestation. How does Jesus solve the problem of visibility? Our inability to see God who is spirit. Manifestation. What does manifestation mean? Or to make something manifest. It is to make something clear. And what we see in Colossians chapter 1 is that Jesus Christ makes God the Father clear to us. Verse 15 of Colossians 1, we've already read it, the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So God chose to reveal himself in many ways, right? In the Old Testament, we have visions, we have dreams, we have different, uh, we have pillars of uh, fire and cloud, and we have different manifestations. But the, arguably, we could say the most clear and the greatest manifestation of God Himself is the person of Jesus Christ. That is the most clear. And so, the problem of visibility of having a relationship with a God I cannot see is remedied by Jesus manifesting the Father. To add support to this, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, 
and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The idea and the imagery there is that Jesus makes clear, manifests God. So here are the two questions, the only two questions I have planned to ask you. So number one, what are some ways or what are some things that we learn about God the Father when looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly in the Gospels? Just off the top of your head, what are some things that we learn about God? So he's holy. What was that? Go for it, Linda. I was reading this today. I can't say it word for word, and I can't find it right now. But it was talking about the tree of life. Okay. And the way that they had it worded just made me cry because it was so beautiful. And then below it, it was because of Jesus. And it had a saying with that. But like I said, right now I can't find it, and I can't remember it word for word. But that's beautiful. else we learn more than that he's sinless in the gospels right I would say compassionate comes to my mind okay he almost defies human logic with that right because he is compassionate on the very least I think the way we could maybe uh, couch that from like the relational side of things, what we learn about God the Father through that is that I mean, He loved the Father, right? I mean, He epitomized love for Father and love for others, right? Think of I think of Philippians two, where he demonstrates great humility. What are some others? His hostility towards sin. What was that? His hostility towards sin. Okay. He demonstrated his power too. Yeah. And then he had command over the sickness yeah. disease and power to forgive sin yeah. he was Jesus Christ the Lord okay so let me ask a, a different question and you're, you might have to hear me out on this one but for fear of being labeled legalistic or moralistic we often shy away these days in Christianity from saying, oh, look at this guy in Scripture, be like him. For instance, um, a lot of the buzz in evangelicalism, like Gospel Coalition stuff, is to say, hey, don't go back in the Old Testament and say, oh, well, David was a man after God's own heart, and here's 15 characteristics of how David was a man after God's own heart. Be like David. I don't necessarily agree with all that exactly, but I see what they're arguing against. So, why is it different 
when we're looking at Jesus? As far as what? Well, why why is it why can we say be like him? Like with no qualifications, no concern of being a moral, accused of moralism or legalism. Why why is it appropriate with no qualifications to say be like Jesus, this is what Jesus was like. Rather than like be like David or be like Joseph. Okay. Okay, so the Bible clearly explicitly says walk as Jesus has walked. So there would be one like immediate, no need for qualification answer. What about the name we bear? The church is comprised of Christians. His name is Jesus Christ. So we are Christians. We bear his name. Kind of like when I was saying, when we are born of God, we bear the resemblance or the marks of him, right? And so that's why I think that it's very fair to say, be like Jesus with no qualifications. Look to the Gospels, look to the New Testament, see what Jesus is like and be like Jesus. You know, obviously don't be going and smoking somebody in the forehead and knock them down and think that they're going <laughs> to remove, the, you're going to remove the demons, right? I'm not suggesting that, okay? But be like Jesus. He epitomized love for the Father. He willingly laid his life down. He epitomized love for others. And he, better than anyone, loved the unlovely, loved the difficult ones, right? I mean, he went right to the least of these, and he loved them. So I think it's perfectly in line because we are born of God. We bear his name. Just like, I think, Chris was here last week, and my mom was here last week, and she was saying, now who do you look like? Do you look like your dad or your mom? I don't know. But I, either way, I bear the marks of Ken and Sue Fisher, because I'm their child. I have their DNA. And in that same way, we now, with the Holy Spirit of God living within us, we have Christ's DNA. We are now born of him, so therefore we emulate him. We now can manifest him to the world. So problem number one in our relationship with God the Father is that there's a visibility problem. How can we have a relationship with a God we cannot see? And Jesus Christ solves that problem by making God the Father manifest to us. He clearly exposes to our eyes what God the Father is like. The second we find in Colossians 1 is the problem of hostility. How can I as a sinner have a relationship with a God who is holy? So the problem of hostility. How can we as sinful people have a relationship with a holy God? And if you look back at Colossians 1, look at verse 19, and we'll just keep reading right into 20 and, and following. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is peace through the blood of Christ. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil, evil behavior. So there it is. We're sinful. We're disobedient. 
Therefore, we have alienated ourselves and have made ourselves enemies. But now he has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present you and I holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So our problem is a big-time character problem, hostility because we're sinners and God is holy. And Jesus fixes that problem through reconciliation. You saw that word a couple times in that text. Reconciliation. So how does God reconcile, that is make peace with, a sinner? I'm sorry, so how does Jesus reconcile a sinner and a holy father? How does he do that? Third question tonight for you. Wasn't planning on that. Is death satisfied God's wrath against our sin? So that for those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior and have accepted that payment of our penalty for our sin. Instead of God seeing us as the sinners that we are that makes us hostile to him, he sees Christ and his blood on the cross and that takes away that hostility that is there and joins us back to God like we should have been or like we were when Adam was created. Would it have been enough for Jesus to satisfy God's wrath? Would that have been enough for us to be reconciled to a holy God? What else needs to happen? But what is well? But what? Okay, let me put it this way because I don't think you're following my. I'm I'm not being a good leader to lead you to the right answer. So, so let's say the floor is where you and I are at, and God is at the the level of the ceiling in holiness. Okay, so we're as far apart as this room will allow. Neutrality is somewhere wherever middle is. So neutrality is here. Like somehow moral neutrality. So, and we're down there because we're sinners. So Jesus, when he died, he paid the penalty of our sins, right? He incurred God's wrath and satisfied his wrath by his sin. So he essentially wiped away the sin debt that we had. So he brought us up to, let's say, a morally neutral uh Standing before God's holiness. But to have a relationship with a God who is holy, we must also be holy, or we must also be righteous. So that's where the doctrine of justification comes in, right? Because to get from this morally neutral place all the way up to the perfect righteousness that we must have in order to relate to a righteous God, we must now be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus to take us from moral neutrality all the way up to that. Does that make sense? So if I could summarize this, how does Jesus reconcile us, sinful human beings, to a holy God? 
and this is probably overly simplistic, but he does so by means of being our substitute. So he has stepped into our place and removed the sin debt by dying on the cross and incurring God's wrath. He has satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. We need to be dying that death, right? We need to be the one hanging on our cross because of our sin. But he died in our place so that we have no more sin debt. But not only did he do that, he lived the righteous life that we never could have lived and that we prove every day that we don't live and can't live. And he has clothed us with the righteousness of Christ and declared us righteous, even though you and I are not presently perfectly righteous in this life, in our human bodies. But we are viewed by God through the lens of Christ as righteous. That doesn't mean that he doesn't see the fact that Pete sinned today or that I sinned. But he views us through the lens of Jesus Christ's righteousness, and now we can have access to a holy God. That is how Jesus reconciles us, sinful men, to a holy God. So problem one is a problem of visibility. Problem two is a problem of hostility. And hostility is remedied by Christ through reconciliation. He was our substitute couple texts that I won't spend time reading right now, but you might want to jot down, or Ephesians, actually just look at the whole chapter of Ephesians 5. Or I'm sorry, not Ephesians 5, what am I saying? Romans 5. Edit that one out, Pete. Romans 5, and, and that'll give you all that you need to, to know about God reconciling us and acting as our substitute. So then, now let's look at the next two ways that Jesus facilitates our relationship with God the Father, and we'll do so by means of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. So we have the problem of visibility, the problem of hostility, now we're going to see the next two problems, starting with problem three, the problem of proximity. So Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has, tempted, has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So problem three is a problem of proximity. How can I communicate with a God who is so far from me? How can I communicate... Because communication is essential to relationship, right? So how can I communicate with a God who is spirit, who I can't see, who is so far, I mean, he's up in heaven somewhere. How can I communicate with that? Well, how does Jesus solve that 
proximity problem. How does Jesus solve that problem of being able to communicate with a God who is so far from me? Well, in the Old Testament, he instituted the priesthood, right? There was the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. And they would enter the Holy of Holies in the holy place and they would make sacrifices and they would um, speak to God on behalf of the people. But I mean, that was a pretty miserable... I mean... How do I say this without making... I'm not trying to say... God obviously saw a need to replace that (laughs) because it was uh, inefficient and ineffective. It did not do the job. And it was never supposed to. It 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 had built-in obsolescence, kind of like every piece of technology that we purchase today. It's always made to with an end in sight to be replaced by something bigger and better before you really need it so that you can spend more money. (laughs) And so the Old Testament Levitical priesthood pointed forward and set a pattern in place so that we would then be able to appreciate the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So his answer, his his solution to this problem of proximity is intercession. Intercession. Jesus is our high priest. And we could spend a lot of time. Just see if I was in a ring. That's terrible. And so, in his intercession, uh, high priestly ministry, we could spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, I would commend to you to study. And there's a lot that goes into his priesthood. It's not solely access to God so that we can pray. Um, But we're not going to go into all of that. I just want to focus our attention on the fact that we do have direct access with God, to God, because of his intercession. Because Jesus Christ entered the holy place, the actual holy place, not the model of the holy place on earth, he entered the holy place of God's throne and he, when he ascended and he is enthroned with God on his throne. And he has, we have access to God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, who is our perfect representative, who made a once-for-all sacrifice, who never has to go back and forth and then go cleanse himself to go back. He is in God's presence all the time and grants us 24 7 365 access to god the father so how can we communicate with a god who we cannot see we have access to that god not just through a temporary means like a human priest we have access via jesus christ the son of god he is our intercessor he is he has Entered. This is part of what's so significant about the the veil or the curtain of the temple being torn when Jesus was crucified. That no longer do we need human priests who are sinners just like you and I to go through this this curtain. Jesus has done that for us. So, problem number four: the problem of empathy. The problem of empathy. How can I, how can you have a relationship with a God that does not understand what my life is like? It's 
So problem number four, the problem of empathy. How can you and I have a relationship with a God that does not understand what my life is like? Look back at Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The problem of empathy. How did Jesus solve the problem of empathy? Through his incarnation. Through his incarnation. That is, um, he became man. He became carnal not in a sinful sense. He became flesh, like you and I. How does Jesus solve the problem of empathy? Understanding what life is like in a sin-cursed world, he did so through his incarnation. He has become flesh. He has become human so that he can sympathize, no, so he can empathize with our weaknesses, with our sin struggles. I thought about the idea of sympathy because that's the original word I had in my notes. And I thought, you know, and I put that in there because I think most every translation has always used the term sympathy. But I don't think uh, I don't think that sympathy is necessarily the best word because sympathy is just simply kind of at a distance, feeling sorry for some someone or something, right? But empathy is actually entering into someone's Suffering and being able to understand it. And there's a difference, right? Jesus didn't ju- doesn't just from a distance feel sorry for us that we got to suffer in this sin cursed world. He actually suffered in this sin cursed world too. He was tempted. And I know the objection you could make. It's all, oh, well, he was tempted, but he was God. He couldn't sin. You're right. He, he was God. And, I, and I've always thought, well, that, that seems a pretty reasonable explanation or a pretty reasonable objection to, well, he must not have really understood what sin or what being tempted was like. But I would suggest that he actually understood it better than we did. Because you see, if we're really tempted and Satan is really pouring it on us hard, we give in. <laughs> he never gave in. So imagine how much longer just from a duration standpoint, how much longer he had to endure the onslaught of Satan. And he never gave in. Who gave in? Satan. That's pretty amazing. Because you know there's no way that Satan was going to give in quick. Because he wanted to take this guy down. And he did. He failed. And he was tempted in every way, right? Because Satan appealed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He, he, he appealed to all those. I mean, unless we just think that Jesus was only tempted to sin in the big test in the wilderness with Satan. I mean, what about when the guards, the Roman guards, are bartering and gambling away his clothing? and spitting on him and whipping him and placing a crown of thorns and mocking him. I mean, would you not, even if by some miracle, 
you didn't try to retaliate. Would you not be having some pretty nasty thoughts about those guys? I mean, I would be. I would probably be cussing them out. Hopefully I wouldn't, but I probably would. (laughs) I dare say many of you would probably be right along with me. So he was tempted. He understood, yet without sin. See, the problem of empathy is solved by his incarnation because he came down in humility and became like us. He took on human flesh so that he could understand. Hebrews 2 puts it this way, For this reason, he had to be made like them, that is man, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 18, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, we have a God who loves us so much that he sent Jesus to be our intercessor and to become like us so he could come alongside of us and empathize with us. The final way that tonight I'd like to meditate on how Jesus has paved the way for our relationship with God. And this one is not going to be found in a single text. And in fact, it's kind of a review of several lessons that we've done, uh, already gone through. Um, we spent two lessons doing it. So I just want to briefly revisit and kind of do a quick flyby. You'll get it when I say it. But problem five is the problem of security. The problem of security. How can I trust a God I can't see? I mean, when I, when, uh, as a dad, just the other night, Tuesday night it was, Four in the well, four in the morning. Caden comes in my room, busts open the door, got his pillows in hand, kind of mopey. Daddy, can I sleep with you? I was had a bad dream. Our house is burning down. That's a pretty bad dream, especially as a five year old. I guess. Come on in. <laughs> I'm never turning that down. My little son snuggling with me? No way. I'm all for that. But he sees daddy. Even though I'm short, I'm small, he finds security in me. In large measure because he knows me and he can see me. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes have a really hard time trusting a God I cannot see. And walking through a life in a sin-cursed world when I sit there and I see things, I think, huh, that just doesn't seem to match up with the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. And I can't even sit there and say, what in the heck's going on, God? Come down and explain this to me. So it's a problem of security. How can you and I trust a God we cannot see? But let me suggest that Jesus has remedied this problem through his consummation. He has fulfilled the promises that God has made. He has consummated these promises. Think about the very name, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, he is the Savior. Christ, he is the promised one, the Messiah. He is the promised Savior, the promised rescuer. His very name points us to the fact that Jesus Christ proves God's faithfulness. Jesus Christ proves God's trustworthiness. Does he not? As we saw weeks and weeks ago when we scanned the entirety of biblical history and we looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we saw that everything is pointing to Jesus. God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that He is going to restore the broken mess that man's sin has caused and He is going to do that through the seed, Jesus Christ, the coming rescuer, the promised Messiah. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that promise being expanded upon and, and kept and preserved. And then Jesus bursts on the scene in the Gospels. And here He is, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is going to be the fulfiller of all that God had promised. I mean, just, just think about that. How dare we, how dare I, not trust God in the stinkiness of the things that I walk through in my life? How dare you not trust God in the stinkiness of life in a sin-cursed world in which you are walking? Because it's our humanness. God, who is rich in mercy, has sent Jesus Christ. And He has fulfilled His promise all the way. Jesus Christ proves God's faithfulness. God is a trustworthy God because He has made good on His promise. And He will not just arbitrarily decide, yep, I'm done with you. I'm not going to make good on this promise. So when the New Testament promises that Christ is going to return to save His people and judge the earth. You better believe that that's going to happen. And we will be with Him forever. That's awesome stuff. And we can trust Him. So let's just kind of wrap this meditation fest up. So five problems that Jesus solves in our relationship to God. Because remember, the entire semester is about you and I developing a relationship with God. Right? So how does Jesus solve the problem that we have, um, naturally speaking, in our relationship with God? The problem of visibility, Jesus fixes that problem because he manifests God and his character to us in a way that we can very easily understand, right? Because he puts hands and feet literally to the character of God. So how can we have a relationship with a God we cannot see? We can because he has been made manifest or been made clear through the person and work of Jesus. Problem two, the problem of hostility. How can a sinner like you and I have a relationship with a God who is holy through reconciliation? Jesus has been our sinless substitute who has not only satisfied God's wrath and provided forgiveness, he has become our holiness and righteousness. Problem three, the problem of proximity. 
How can I communicate with a God who is so far from me, a God who I cannot see? It's through intercession. Jesus is our high priest. He has entered the Holy of Holies at the throne room of God, and he gives us 24-7, 365 access to God the Father. Problem four, the problem of empathy. How can a God who is so far away, who is spirit, who is not enfleshed himself in a sin-cursed world like you and I live in, how can he understand what our life is like? It's through the incarnation. He actually did do that. There's no other God in any other religion who has done that. God became man. Therefore, he can empathize with our weaknesses, with our sin struggles. And then lastly, the problem of security. How can you and I trust a God that we, we cannot see with our own eyes and touch and feel with our senses? It's consummation. Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises. He is the promised Savior. So in conclusion... If we are, number one, if we are born of God, then we are to reflect his character as his child. Much the same way I reflect, as I already alluded to, the the qualities and characteristics of my mom and dad. God has not only chosen to reveal himself in writing, but he also has chosen to reveal himself in the person and work of his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He has enfleshed his character for us to see. So we can see Jesus' life and we can see Jesus' ministry and we can see there what godliness looks like in human form. So we have the perfect model of godliness before our very eyes. So let's pattern our lives after him. Let's pattern our lives after him. Number two, let's praise God for reconciling us God's sinners and enemies by our own stinking choice. We're not orphans because someone else gave us up. We are orphans because we have run away. So let's praise God for reconciling us, sinners and enemies by nature and by choice. He has reconciled us to Himself at His own expense at the expense of his son, Jesus Christ. Number three, since Jesus has given us 24-7, 365 access to God, direct access, not through a human high priest, let's go to him in prayer. We have access. When you lay your head on your pillow tonight, pray. When you drive in your car to work, pray. When you need a break at work, go walk around in circles and pray. Number four, and not only go to him in prayer, but do so confidently and confidently ask him for the grace and the mercy that you and I need to live lives that please him in the sin-cursed world in which we live. And the reason we can go confidently is not only because he is our high priest who is perfect, who's there, but we can go because he gets it. He empathizes with our need, with our struggles, with our sin temptation. He gets it. 
Therefore, we can go and not be bashful and think, oh, he's not going to understand this. Because isn't that the way that you and I live sometimes? We want to go, we, maybe we have a problem in our life and we want to go talk to somebody. But we really don't want to go, to, we would rather go talk to someone who's been there and done that than someone who is just has all the factual knowledge but can't apply it because they don't get it. They don't get how difficult the situation is. But Jesus has been there. He gets how difficult your life is in my life. Then lastly, Jesus Christ, God the Son, proves the faithfulness of God. He is a promise-keeping God who can be trusted. So trust Him. Trust Him. Preach God's faithfulness to yourselves every day. And that's hard. It's hard to trust. At least it is for me. But we got to do it. And he has proved himself trustworthy. So if we refuse to trust him, the problem is not because he's not trustworthy. It's because we've got the trust problem. And if, and if we look at him and say, well, our, the circumstances of our lives don't seem to be uh, justifying you to me. One of two things is, is the problem. Either God is a liar, which can't be, or we have a problem on our end interpreting everything right. And that's the problem. And I think it's very easy for us, especially as American Christians, to sit there and look at life and think, well, God, this is how my life is supposed to be. And then my life isn't the way I think it's supposed to be. But we hold God not to the standard that he has claimed for himself. We hold him to our standard. And when he doesn't meet our standard, then we say, well, he's not trustworthy. I can say this, I can tell you this, that that's what I think it, the problem is, because I live that. Like, I do that. I've done that. I mean, God is doing things in my life to eradicate that from me. <laughs> it's kind of painful. But I'm glad he's doing it, because he's eradicating those that, that faulty notion of, well, this is the way my life is supposed to be. No, no, no. God gets to decide that. I'm in his hands, and he's trustworthy and faithful. If there's a problem, it's on my, my interpretation of things, not on God, because God has proven himself to be faithful and true. He is trustworthy. So we must lay ourselves down at the feet of his good word say okay I believe that because everything else around us changes like the wind and we never know what, what's up or down but here we know God's word is true so let's trust him Father thank you for your son we thank you that he has made you manifest that he has reconciled us to you that he is our intercessor that he can empathize with us and that he has fulfilled all of your good promises to us. 
I thank you that you are a God who is trustworthy. God, help us to trust you because it's so hard sometimes to do so. I know that it requires not a change in you, but a change in us for us to trust you the way we ought. So I pray that you would help us to trust you. In your name we pray.